As we come to God's word, let's, uh, let's pray together. And Father God, we do pray for your help by your spirit uh, that you would illuminate uh, this word to us, that we would have soft hearts to receive it, and that, Lord, you would, you would work in us to transform us, to live lives more like Christ. And this we ask in his name. Amen. When it comes to our own lives, family can have such a big impact upon us. For some people, that can be a really positive experience. Maybe we've had a a great upbringing, uh, lots of love, lots of care, and good memories along the way. For others, perhaps, the experience can be a little less positive. Uh, Maybe uh, family filled with arguments, with absences, and maybe some issues along the way. And yet, as we come to faith in the Lord Jesus, we are brought into a new family, the family of God, the church. And yet, at the very same time, we are not the perfect family either, because we are sinners saved by grace. We are saved, we are God's children, and yet at the very same time, we continue to sin. We are sinners saved by grace. We're trophies of God's grace in that sense. Trophies of God's grace in progress. And yet wonderfully, it is God's grace in Jesus Christ that unites us, that brings us to be family, the family of God. It's his work on our behalf that makes us brothers and sisters in the family of God. And so as we think of the end of this letter of 1 Thessalonians in chapter 5 this evening, we're, we're going to be thinking just about that, about that, that theme. What does it mean to live as family together? As living as God's family? Well, firstly, it means that we appreciate the task of church leaders. As Paul says in verse 12 to 13, Now we ask you, brothers and sisters, to acknowledge those who work hard among you, who care for you in the Lord, and who admonish you. Hold them in the highest regard in love because of their work. Live in peace with each other. When I first read these verses and knew that I had to preach on them, I just laughed out loud to myself in my office. Because I'm thinking, how how am I going to preach on this? It's the sort of thing you really want a guest preacher to come in and preach upon. Um, And it's not easy. It is not an easy passage to speak on as a church leader to the church. Uh, Let me just preface this as well by saying there's there's nothing personal in anything that I will say here. I'm not having a go at anyone. I have sat under messages like that, and I'm not doing that tonight. But it basically says, what it basically says is recognize And respect your church leaders for all the hard work they do. Hold them in high regard, in love. Because in light of, you think of the mood today, the sense of authority. What is the the feeling that comes to mind when people talk about authority? It's this aspect of, well, it, it could be described as oppressive. Or maybe other emotive words like like harmful or dangerous. This aspect of authority. However, Legan Duncan, he says in his commentary, we need to be careful that our attitude to authority is shaped by the gospel, not the culture. 
culture is all about the individual and all about the individual's preference. In the gospel, it is about God and his word. In culture, it's the individual that's supreme. In the gospel, it's God and his word that is supreme. And God gives church leaders authority to preach and to apply his word. And yet nonetheless, to, to think about church leadership in this context of today is really challenging. Especially as we go back to this past week, because there is one word that keeps coming up, and that is safeguarding. Safeguarding, safeguarding, safeguarding. That's the word that's running through many of our minds when we think about authority in any aspect, maybe even in church. Because in light of the training that we've received this past week, and perhaps sadly in light of recent news events, there seems to be almost a constant flow of scandals and malpractices that seem to hit the headlines. And therefore, as a result, people then start to doubt any authority, especially that in the church. And let me be honest, this isn't, this isn't lost on us as church leaders. Because there is the threat of accusation, be that justified or not. That is never far away. The context really of, of these verses is that Paul's letter, he's writing to the church leaders who have rebuked the church sharply because they'd basically stopped doing anything. They'd put down all their work. Uh, they thought that Jesus was going to return imminently. And so they said, well, what's the, what's the point? <laughs> Why bother? Jesus is coming back. And therefore, the church leaders had corrected them firmly, maybe too firmly, and there was apparently some offense. Which is why Paul says at the end of verse 13, live in peace with each other. Because the role of a church leader is not an easy one. All you need to do is speak to an elder's wife in any church and ask them, and they won't tell you how hard it is to be an elder's wife. Sometimes as leaders, we have easy and really encouraging conversations. And other times we have hard and difficult conversations with people. Speaking with someone uh, this past week, uh, they told me that um, they told me the story of a farmer. A farmer that uh, when his cows ate elderberries, uh, they would produce a gas in their stomach. And if it was left alone, well, it would end up killing the cow. Therefore, the farmer, what he had to do was he had to pierce the stomach of the cow to release the gas. And therefore, he carried around with him a knife all the time. And so that if he saw a cow with a swollen stomach, he would stab it to release the gas and save the cow. And one day he saw a cow in the field with a swollen stomach, but he left it alone. Because to interfere with a massive animal like a cow is an awkward thing to do. And so the cow died. Because the farmer needed to stab the cow's stomach. And sometimes, as church leaders or in any part of leadership, we need to have those conversations. The stab the cow conversations. It's the hard thing that is... It's, it's much harder to do, isn't it? To have those hard conversations. It's far easier, really, not to have that conversation. But in love, if we do love our people, we need to, we need to talk to them about hard things. Not because we hate them, but in fact because we love them. As church leaders, 
We won't always get things right. We are sinners, just like everyone else, sinners saved by grace. But with God's help, and as we seek to care, love, and admonish God's flock, we do so as we seek to keep the peace in the fellowship. As being a, a church leader is a, is a high calling. It is a, a difficult calling. I read a, a book recently called Pastoral Friendship. And the author, he speaks about uh, the need of, of friendship uh, within those in ministry, uh, those within the church and out with the church, uh, because he talks about the dropout rate in pastors, the dropout rate uh, for church leaders, uh, for pastors, not making it to five years is 50%. Uh, those who don't make it to 10 years is 80%. Two out of every 10 pastors will therefore make it to 10 years and beyond. And so the, the work of a church leader is vast. It is great. It's a wonderful calling. And yet it is also a tough calling. And so we ask you to pray for church leaders. As the call is firstly to appreciate the task of church leaders. And secondly, to encourage and admonish one another. And so the first part is really on how to address church leaders. And the second part is how to address one another. As Paul says in verse 14 to 15. And we urge you, brothers and sisters, warn those who are idle and destructive, encourage the disheartened, help the weak, be patient with everyone. Make sure that nobody pays back wrong for wrong, but always strive to do what is good for each other and for everyone else. The address here is to brothers and sisters, that is the whole church family, and to speak to one another. The word warn that Paul uses here is the same word as admonish. Uh, the tone is that for that of a, a respectful request. It means to correct without provoking or embittering. As Paul calls the Thessalonians to, to admonish those who are idle and disruptive. In the context, we're thinking of people who are waiting on Jesus coming back. And so they just down tools and don't do anything. And as a result, rather than being busy people, they end up being busy bodies people who are disruptive with other people because they just have nothing to do that's the issue that they that they are thinking about that's the issue uh, that paul is rebuking them for and then they're obsessed it seems they're obsessed with jesus return and that's the reason that they stop doing any work but i wonder is that our obsession today are we obsessed with the return of jesus as we ask ourselves the question, is Jesus coming back? Is that ever really a thought that drifts through your mind through the week? Has, have you thought about that this week? That Jesus is coming back? If we truly believe that the Lord is coming back, then that should change us. It should radically change our lives. It should make us people who are striving in contrast to the Thessalonians, people who are striving to do good striving to, to serve people to reach the lost with the gospel to busy ourselves in service rather than busy ourselves with other people's business that's paul's thought uh, that our eyes should be so fixed on the lord on who he is and actually the fact that he will return that we haven't got time to do anything else we haven't got time to grumble and gossip about other people we look to the lord and it should change us as we're not to repay wrong for wrong, but instead to strive to do good for other people. I don't know if you watch much TV. Uh, I've only started watching much more since I've got married. 
that's not a dig, but <laughs> it's the reality. And uh, I started watching a little bit of Netflix uh, with a show called Lupin. It's a, a French drama uh, with a character called Assange Dupont. Uh, he he basically sets out to avenge uh, his father for an injustice that was inflicted upon him by a wealthy father, a wealthy family. However, as it unfolds, it becomes clear that Asan, he is on a mission, a mission not of justice, but of vengeance. And so he's eaten up by anger and rage because of this, this family who have wronged him. And therefore, he's sucked into this black hole of unending bitterness and anger. And that's really how the show continues. Because if we are like that, if we continually live like that, feeling that we've been aggrieved, carrying bitterness in our lives, then we will be consumed by that. We will be angry people. But the good news is that vengeance is mine, declares the Lord. I will repay. We don't need to look for vengeance ourselves. God will do it. There is a day of justice, a day of judgment when the Lord will right every wrong. Our role is to give all those things to the Lord and to pray for those who have hurt us, that instead of showing vengeance, we would show mercy to them as we have received mercy. The call really is to to take our eyes off of ourselves and to look to the Lord. And in that, that we would serve other people. Now, that might be just in the, in the small things of sending a text message. It might be to pray for people um, that we, as we read the, the weekly news sheet. It might be to look for ways to serve others, either in the church or outside the church, ways in which we're not doing at the moment. Or it might just be to do small things, acts of kindness, as we seek to lovingly serve others around us. As living as God's family means we we appreciate the task of God's leaders. We encourage and admonish one another. And thirdly, that we live joyful and holy lives. The Apostle Paul, he goes on from verse 16 to 22 with many exhortations. As he says from verse 16, Rejoice always, pray continually, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Do not quench the spirit. Do not treat prophecies with contempt, but test them all. Hold on to what is good. Reject every kind of evil. The call broadly really here is to to lead a prayerful, grateful, and joyful life. To live a life as what some theologians describe as coram deo, which means to live before the face of God, that all of our life would be a grateful life, that we would be prayerful, grateful, thankful people. The theologian Thomas Nelson, he describes Coram Deo like this. He says, it's to live a life, to live a life of Coram Deo is to live a life of integrity. It is a life of wholeness that finds its unity and coherency in the, in the majesty of God. As Paul says in verse 18, it's, it's really to, to give thanks in all circumstances. For this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. To be grateful people, joyful people. People who are continually giving thanks to the Lord for all things. And this isn't something that we muster up ourselves. But this is something that God does in us. It's God who transforms us. 
in such a way that our minds and our hearts are shaped not by the the bombardment of the world and the negativity, but by the good news of the gospel. That we would be people who recognize God's hand in every single thing. That we look to trust him in things that we don't understand. And we hand everything over to him prayerfully. That we would be people who are marked by, by joy, by thanksgiving, by gratitude. Perhaps one way of, of working that out is when we meet people, just ask them that question. How has the Lord been encouraging you recently? Just a very simple question. It's a question which I will often ask people when I connect with them. And maybe it's something that you've read in the Word. Maybe it's something, maybe you're reading a Christian book or, or a podcast or something that you've, you've listened to from someone else. An easy question to ask one another as you meet with other Christians, just to encourage them. How has the Lord been encouraging you recently? That's what Paul means. The whole tone is one of exhortation to encouragement, to rejoice, to give thanks to the Lord. As he says in verse 19, don't quench the spirit. That's the opposite of that is to be grumbling and complaining. That is what it means to quench the spirit, to go against God's word. As we're told in, verse, in, in Romans 8, if we live by the flesh, we will die. But if we live by the Spirit, we will have life and peace. It's the joy of walking with the Lord. To not quench the Spirit is to, to not grumble, to not complain, but instead have a thankful life. As we're called in verse 21 to 22, to hold on to what is good and reject every kind of evil. Not to be people who hold on to grudges, who grumble, who complain, like we said that we merit something in some way. If that is our our attitude, our posture in life, then we have to repent of that. As believers, we have to repent of that. That we in some way think that we we earn something, that we're owed something from the Lord. Because all that we we should receive from God is his justice, his wrath. But we don't receive that. We receive mercy and grace day upon day. His mercies are new every morning for us in Christ. That is the good news of the gospel. And so we cannot hold on to grudges. We cannot be people who grumble or complain, but people instead who are grateful and thankful. As we look upwards and outwards, not inwards, to all that the Lord has done for us. Lastly, in this section, in verse 20, Paul says, Do not treat prophecies with contempt. As In the context, people kept saying, Well, Jesus is coming back, Jesus is coming back. Uh, my favorite, uh, I read through many commentaries on this, and Legan Duncan, is my, uh, he has a really good, really good phrase where he says, Commentators disagree, uh, because different people have different interpretations of what this means. But the most important thing to hold on to is that God's word is the supreme prophetic word. We should not treat that in contempt as we receive his word to us daily that we would live lives that reflect godless holiness and joy as we seek to to strive to live for the lord and so living as god's people means we appreciate the task of church leaders we encourage and admonish one another we live joyful and holy lives and lastly we acknowledge it's all a work of god it's all a work of God. The exhortations and commands, which are many in this passage, they come thick and fast. 
But these two verses, verse 23 and 24, they really are the fuel to us to live this out. As we look at these verses, we realize it's all God's work. As Paul says, really in a prayer, he says, May God himself, the God of peace, sanctify you through and through. May your whole spirit, soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. The one who calls you is faithful and he will do it. Because from the very beginning of the Christian life to the very end, it is a work of the Lord. As we see in verse 23, God sanctifies us. He he sets us apart. He makes us holy by his spirit. And God is the one who will bring us to glory. It's all God's work. We have a wonderful assurance in that. It's a work of God. Because the Thessalonians, well, they are undergoing, as you read through the book, they're undergoing massive persecution from the Roman authorities. And they're wondering, will I be able to keep going? Because I'm getting battered, perhaps even physically battered, by the Roman authorities as they sought to live for Jesus Christ as Lord. And for us today, we can find assurance when we find, when we find ourselves perhaps alone. Maybe that's at school. We just find ourselves alone as a Christian. Maybe it's at work. We are the only Christian in our workplace. Maybe we just feel discouraged or we have doubts about, is this really worth it? Is following Jesus worth it? Because on the day when the Lord Jesus returns, we will be found in him, not because of anything that we have done, but only because of his work for us. Because God is the one who has called us to himself God is the one who has saved us from our sins. God is the one who is sanctifying us. God is the one who is keeping us and will keep us. And God is the one who will glorify us when we meet the Lord Jesus face to face. It is all a work of God. And we can rest in that. And therefore, we can just delight in that because it's all God's work. Therefore, really, we have to repent of any self-righteousness that makes us think that we are any better than anyone else. It's all grace. We haven't earned it. We don't deserve it. But it's only by God's saving grace in our lives, by what he has done for us in Jesus, that we can come to him and know that we will be kept till the end. No matter how we might think or feel, God will keep us until the very end. And therefore, as Paul says in verse 25, brothers and sisters, pray for us. Pray for us. Pray for each other that we would walk as a fellowship, as a church, that we would walk not in the flesh, which leads to death, but in the spirit, which leads to peace, life and peace. Pray for us as church leaders that we would look to the to the Lord every single day, repenting of sin and leading God's people in God's ways. And pray for yourselves. Pray that God would work in you deeply, as Paul says in the passage, in spirit, soul, and body, that you would be kept blameless at the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ when he returns, because it is all a work of grace. Let's pray. And give thanks.
Father God, we thank you for your amazing grace to us. We thank you that you have saved us, redeemed us, are sanctifying us, and will glorify us on the day when Jesus returns. And we pray, Father, that you would help us to repent of any idea that we have deserved it, that we earn it, that we uh, should in some way receive it because of all the things that we have done. Lord, forgive us. Forgive us for all that. Help us to receive your grace afresh today. That we would live lives that are honoring to you as God's family, seeking to love one another, to serve one another for your glory and for our good. This we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.